When it comes to the eternal salvation of your soul, it's critical that you're relying on the correct source of truth. You read this verse, and your mind is flooded like mine with questions, and you immediately want to say, that's not fair. And that's exactly what Paul knew we'd say. So he goes on in verse 14 to say, there is no injustice with God is there. In other words, you're not saying or suggesting that God isn't fair, are you? But I want you to know that I would rather have a God who provokes a thousand questions than the imaginary God of our generation who barely provokes a yawn. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, a man or a woman, rich or poor, there's only one means of salvation. Salvation comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Since Judaism rejects the Bible's teaching on Jesus, what does that mean for the Jews? The Bible calls them God's chosen people. Are they? Christianity has inspired many ill feelings in those who disagree with it. Today, Stephen discusses an ill feeling people have toward the truth. It's not anger nor contempt. It's envy. Stephen returns to Romans 11, and he's called this message green with envy. Let's get started right now. A.W. Tozer wrote these very provocative words. He said, if we were able to extract from any man an answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God? We would be able to predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. What do you think about when you think about God? Who is God to you? Your answer determines more about you than God, for God would never change based upon your own interpretation of who he is. But some might say, why bother with the study of God? Another author, J.I. Packer, warned his generation and ours, you disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life, blindfolded with no sense of direction. You ignore the study of God and just go ahead and wander through life. Tozer added this in his own writing to the believer. He adds this on top of what Packer said. He says this to the Christian. If you would bring back spiritual power to your lives, you must begin to think of God more nearly as he is. And how do you think of God more nearly as he is? You think of God more nearly as he is, as you study what his word says he is. For the word of God is not fiction, it is truth. And if the devil is going to get us to believe that, he's won a major victory, of course. For if the Bible is fiction, not only is salvation anybody's guess, whether there is a heaven or a hell or moral absolutes are now up for any question, but more importantly, just who God is, is now up to anybody and everybody's imagination. No wonder our generation in particular stumbles through life with no sense of direction. And I say all of that because we're about to begin studying in a little closer detail a description of God that runs counter to the heart and the logic and the reasoning of the normal human being. We're about to study who God is in terms that may make us feel uncomfortable unless we believe it's truth and then our hearts will be filled 
certainly with questions, but with the soaring through means of this incredible truth. Now, the theme of Romans chapter 9, in a word, is sovereignty. And you ought to write that somewhere at the heading of your chapter, the sovereignty of God. Now, while the nation Israel is the subject matter, as Paul talks about their past in chapter 9 and their present in chapter 10 and their future in chapter 11, when you study this chapter, you see between the lines and even boldly stated that the subject matter is the sovereignty of God. Now, when I say I believe in the sovereignty of God, I'm sort of preaching to the choir. I doubt many in here would say, I don't believe in the sovereignty of God. But let me be a little more specific. The theme of Romans chapter 9 is the sovereignty of God in election. And I have your attention now. In this section, Paul will describe who God is with statements on the one hand that seem very troubling, in fact, somewhat shocking. And then on the other hand, when you believe it, It is reassuring that God is sovereign in everything, certainly in the matter and the prescription of redemption. And what Paul will do here in this paragraph, beginning with verse 6 in Romans 9, which is where we left off, is describe God's sovereignty with two illustrations from Israel's past history. First, God's sovereignty will be seen in the supernatural conception of Isaac. And secondly, God's sovereignty will be seen in the sovereign election of Jacob. If you have your Bibles, let's begin in chapter 9 with verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, back at the beginning of this paragraph, Paul begins by saying, it is not as though the word of God has failed, literally fallen or fallen apart. That is just because the nation of Israel has rejected the Messiah. That doesn't mean the word of God regarding the nation Israel has failed. And he reminds them in that next verse that all Israel or true Israel is not necessarily those who descended from Abraham. And we've already spent a lot of time studying that. I'll at least remind you of what Paul wrote to the Galatians in chapter 3 verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The promise. Now, all Israel didn't believe, did they? In fact, the nation at large rejected Christ. Only a few believed at first. So does this mean then that the promise of calling a nation to himself, that that somehow failed? Well, what Paul will do here is he will take from their own history, proving through illustrations that while all of the nation did not believe that God was electing from within the nation some who would believe. And they are the true Israel. They are the true Israelites, sons and daughters of God by faith in him, just as Abraham believed and by faith 
was justified. And Paul goes all the way back to the beginning of the nation Israel to show that God was sovereign in his choosing and that his purpose has not failed. So he begins here in this paragraph by mentioning, of course, Abraham. Now the Jews knew their history. They would know from knowing their own history that Abraham did not seek God. God sought after Abraham. Abraham was a member of a pagan, idolatrous family. Not one shred, as it were, of light. But God sought Abraham, giving to him light, whereby he would believe. And since the call of Abraham is recorded in Genesis chapter 12, every Jew reading this letter called Romans would have to confess that Jewish history began with God's choosing of Abraham. The nation began by the election of this one named Abraham. And then Paul moves in this paragraph to mention Isaac, the son of Abraham. And if that isn't proof of God's sovereign power, nothing is. Look at verse 9. For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. The nation of Israel could never ignore or deny that the special called man named Abraham would never have gotten any further. In fact, he would have convoluted, distorting the promise through what he'll do, as we'll see in a minute, unless God had sovereignly brought life, as it were to be, in the womb of a woman who was well past childbearing age. The conception of Isaac occurred in spite of physical impossibilities. Genesis tells us she was barren, chapter 11, verse 30. Moses also tells us that she's past the age of childbearing, chapter 18, verse 11. And then on top of that, chapter 17, verse 17 tells us she was 90 years of age. And she conceives and bears a son. Why? Because God made a promise. God promised and God is sovereignly capable of fulfilling his promise without help, as it were, of mankind. But even more than that is this point, the conception of Isaac occurred in spite of physical impossibilities, first of all, but secondly, in spite of faithless attitudes. Let's go back in that story for a minute, shall we, in Genesis. Turn there to Genesis chapter 16. And while you're turning, let me set the stage. It's been at least 10 years since God made the promise to Abram that his descendants would outnumber the stars. You can only imagine Abram's sense of anticipation. In fact, his name, Abram, means illustrious father, proud father, exalted father. You can imagine people introducing themselves to Abram and then asking of him his own name. And Hebrew names would be very significant. They would be articulating in effect what the person was or what the person did or what the person may even own. And they would ask him, well, what is your name? And he would say, well, my name is Abram, illustrious father. And they would say, oh, you must be a very proud father of a child or of children. And Abram might hang his head and kick the dirt and say, well, I don't have any children. But then he'd add, I believe, the word yet. I don't have any children yet. Well, what do you mean yet? Well, because God has promised at least one child. Well, by the time you reach chapter 16 of Genesis, I think Abram has stopped saying yet. He doesn't say it anymore, I don't think. He is filled with doubt and so is his wife, as we'll see in a minute. Whenever you doubt the sovereignty of God, it won't be long before you trust the sovereignty of you. You fail to trust the power of God and that means you will trust the power of you. And as we go through this story, I want to pull out some practical things that occur whenever any one of us regarding anything in life takes matter into our own hands. And the first thing I want you to notice is that you will begin to rationalize your resentment 
of God's will. Look at verse 1, Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. In other words, it's all his fault. Look what he's doing to my life. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And you have to think as you read this record at this very point, oh, Man, the nation chosen by God that will come from the loins of Abram is already corrupted. It will indeed be fallen apart. And did you notice how Sarah begins back in verse 2? Behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Theologically, in a sense, she's right. But her bitterness and her resentment is not. From a human perspective, surely conception may be viewed as an accident or a difficulty or a travesty or a tragedy, but it cannot happen without God's sovereign purpose to bring about a life that will never, ever end. For conception to occur requires the purpose of God, which means that for it not to occur also requires the purpose of God. And we spend all of our time and attention on the medical or physical conditions, which may seem to be the primary cause, but behind those conditions, which God may allow through science to repair, but those are not primary. Behind it is a sovereign primary cause who is God. And rather than trust in the purpose of a sovereign God who'd promised Sarai turns bitter and resentful toward God and she says, in effect, God is ruining my life. God is messing up my life. God is in the way of what I want. What's worse, she takes matters into her own hands and decides that another wife who can bear a child would be better than one who cannot. And I imagine behind the scenes, the enemy of this nation that will be is wringing his hands with glee. He will now have an opportunity to corrupt the nation. He can now bring about the falling apart of the nation that many might even believe now in Paul's day. By the way, you can tell when you're taking matters into your own hands, when you refuse to live by God's boundaries and God's parameters and God's prohibitions and wait for God's purposes. Sarai says, God isn't coming through. It's time to institute plan B, which is nothing more or less than rebellion with with rather spiritual sounding words. Maybe you know somebody that's doing that very kind of thing. It's using a spiritual vocabulary to do nothing more than justify their sin. You know, God won't mind Or God made me with needs and I'm meeting my needs and God wants me to be happy and I'm happy. Sarai uses spiritual words, but she's actually acting out in rebellion against God. And she gives ungodly advice to her husband who fails to maintain the standard of godliness as her shepherd. And he follows along. Verse 4 tells us she went into Hagar and she conceived. And then note what happens when she saw that she had conceived her mistress was despised in her sight. Now they hate each other. You take matters into your own hands and you not only rationalize your resentment, but you ruin, second of all, personal relationships. Just wait and see. At least three relationships will be profoundly affected here. Between Sarah and Hagar, you have this bitter rivalry between their sons 
Ishmael, who is the father, as it were, of modern Arab nations, and Isaac, the father of the Jewish nation, and the descendants of those two boys are still fighting, still in the news, thousands of years later, we're watching them fight over the same piece of property. They both claim Abraham as their father, and they're both right. You have this bitter feud and this hatred which can only be explained in terms of what you read in Scripture. Even the relationship between Sarah and Abraham suffered. Look at verse 5. Sarah says to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. Isn't that great? Abram, it's, it's all your fault. And in a way it was. She knew he was wrong. He knew he was wrong. Hagar knew they were both wrong. And Ishmael will never get over how wrong they were. We have every reason to believe that the nation Israel will never make it to first base unless God is sovereign. By the way, there's one more thing that happens when we take matters into our own hands. We not only rationalize our rebellion and ruin relationships, but we refuse to believe God's reassurances. Look over at at verse 5 of chapter 17. Here God comes now to reassure Abram. And he says to him, listen, Abram, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. That's what Abraham means. He went from being illustrious father of maybe one or more children to now being called Abraham, which means father of multitudes. Imagine introducing yourself now. Father of nations. This would have been reassuring had Abram followed the prescription of God, but now he can't even believe God's reassurances. Look at verse 15 in the same chapter. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. That means princess. In other words, she's royalty now. Why? Because he goes on to say, kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abram fell on his face and worshiped God. No. And laughed. Can you imagine having an audience with God and God tells you something and you're so far removed from obeying him that your response is you laugh? If you look over at chapter 18, verse 13, you discover Sarah's laughing too. And God says to Abraham in verse 13, why did Sarah laugh saying, shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? And listen to this. You ought to underline this if it didn't already. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? That's the point. See, your problem, Abraham, is you don't understand who God is. You don't understand sovereignty. Sovereignty has to do with the fact that conception doesn't occur, and it has to do with the fact that conception does occur. You see, my friends, God was bringing Abraham and Sarah past childbearing age. He was moving them beyond what they could figure out. He was moving them beyond the norm. So they could never take credit for the beginning of this nation ever making it even to the second generation. It would be clear that his power and his might and his sovereign purpose over the affairs of mankind would rule the day. And God will manifest his sovereign even in the nursery. Even there. 
He determines conception. He determines the life that will be born. He determines the kind of person that that baby will be. He determines the physical makeup of that child knit together in the womb. He determines the timing of that birth, the generation, the family, the nation where the child will be born and raised. Which means when you understand this and you believe this, it means he chose you to be born. He made you. He put you together. He chose you to be born in this generation, at this time, in this place. God said in verse 14 of this chapter, at the appointed time, I'm going to return to you, and at this time next year, Sarah's going to have a son. Now, does that mean that Abraham and Sarah won't have to be able to get together physically? Would there be no egg, no sperm? Certainly, were there not nine months of growth? All of that would occur, yes, to all of that, but these... Though we look at them as primary issues, these are secondary issues, and the primary cause is God. And Paul says back in Romans 9, go back there, he says, The very fact that this nation exists, this child was born, this inconceivable conception, if you can imagine that irony, occurred. And even though Ishmael was Abraham's firstborn son, Isaac would be the one chosen by God. Now, back here in Romans 9, Paul anticipated the Jewish reader saying, well, you know, it wouldn't be a difficult choice. This isn't hard. We can understand God's election. Ishmael isn't a pure blood. He's the son of an Egyptian mother and Abraham. It's obvious that God would choose Isaac. And Paul, in effect, says, I knew you'd say that. And so I want to give you another illustration. Verse 10. Not only this, but there was Rebekah also. When she had conceived twins, by one man, our father Isaac. Now you've got an interesting situation here. It's one thing for God to elect Isaac over Ishmael. But now you've got twins. It could be double trouble, right? They have the same Jewish parents. Both are pure-blooded Jews. God will make a choice, and his choice is dramatic for at least three reasons. Number one, he chooses the second-born twin. In other words, he goes against the norm. You have the inheritance and the the passing of the right and the blessing of the firstborn. God just circumvents that. And it's his way of saying, I am the one in control. Second of all, the choice is made before they are even born. Paul specifically states that this was all done so that God's electing purpose might be irrefutably known and taught. Thirdly, the choice is made independent of merit. One doesn't grow up to be a better boy than the other one. In fact, they're both kind of rotten. If you study their lives, Jacob's election occurred before his birth and it will occur in spite of his behavior. A woman came up to Charles Spurgeon who had preached on this text 150 years ago, a great preacher. And she said, I don't understand how God could say he hated Esau. And Spurgeon responded by saying, Madam, I find it more difficult to understand how he could say he loved Jacob. From what I know of Jacob, Jacob have I loved or in this context chosen, but Esau I have hated in this context rejected. Does that raise a thousand questions? You bet it does. But I want you to know that I would rather have a God taken at face value in the scriptures who provokes a thousand questions than the imaginary God of our generation who barely provokes a yawn. You read this verse, 
then your mind is flooded like mine with questions and you immediately want to say, that's not fair. And that's exactly what Paul knew we'd say. So he goes on in verse 14 to say, there is no injustice with God is there. In other words, you're not saying or suggesting that God isn't fair, are you? May it never be. Let me give you at least two thoughts in closing about this subject. Number one, and I'm going to say the same thing two different ways. Talk of election usually focuses on the negative. We immediately run to all the questions we'll never be able to answer. When it was intended by God to be reassuring. That's why Paul is using it here. He wants to reassure those who will believe that God's promises haven't failed. Even though the nation Israel has rejected Jesus Christ. God knew that. God is calling out true Israel from among the nation of Israel who will believe. Second of all, the negative questions about election often cloud out the amazing implications of this wonderful doctrine. Like these. Let me say them again with different words. You are here on planet earth today by God's appointment. You know how significant that is? You know what that says about you? And what it says about God's thoughts concerning you? You were born into your family and into your generation by his timing. You were put together with strengths and weaknesses to glorify God's grace and sufficiency. You are even now under God's determined plan of training and pruning and conforming. He's in charge of that too. So relax and just follow him. He's sovereign. Don't take matters into your own hands, no matter what you're facing, no matter where you are, no matter how you failed. There is a widow in our assembly, a widow of many years, a woman greatly used by God, brilliant, earned doctorates, a great teacher. She was married to a man who was a scholar as well, an author, an influential leader. And she has been his widow now for several decades. Every time I see her, and now that the church has grown larger, it is not as often as I'd like. I ask her, how's it going? And without fail, she'll look up at me right in my eyes, smile and say, God is on the throne. I love that. God is on the throne. We will never answer all of the questions as we plow our way through chapter 9. We're going to have fun trying. And it may irritate you to no end. But let me leave you with this. As God, who is described in this book as a sovereign king, we echo from the book of Job these words. Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are as high as the heavens. What can you do. There's only one thing. We can believe this description of God and say in our hearts and with our lives and with our wills, God is on the throne. hope that your words and the example of your life will cause people to want what you have today. 
You're listening to Stephen Davey here on Wisdom for the Heart. If you haven't seen it yet, we'd like to send you a gift of several issues of Stephen's magazine. Stephen deals with a different topic each month and helps you better understand what the Bible says and how it applies directly to your life. The magazine also has a daily devotional guide that you can use to remain grounded in God's Word every day. This is a resource that we give to all of our partners, and we'd like to send some issues to you. Call us at 866-48-BIBLE. Then tune back in next time as we bring you more wisdom for the hearts.